0: Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory and analysis. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio. This Friday, as of the time this episode goes out, we will be marking a very special occasion, the 205th birthday of the man who lends his name to this podcast, Karl Marx, who was born in 1818 on the 5th of May in Trier, Prussia. We understand that Marx wasn't always a Marxist. Marx didn't suck his ideas out of his thumb. He existed as part of a lineage, a part of a development of socialist revolutionary ideas. He obviously paid homage to various philosophers and economists when it came to developing the school of thought that we now call Marxism, in collaboration with his close friend and comrade Friedrich Engels. And he also came of age at a time where capitalism itself was coming of age, a time when the working class as a mass force was really beginning to leave its stamp on history. And obviously, these revolutionary events, the Revolutionary Wave of 1848, later the Paris Commune in 1871, played a very important role in developing Marx as a thinker and as a revolutionary. So we're very fortunate today to have with us Josh Holroyd, who is a member of the International Marxist Tendency, its British section, Socialist Appeal, and an editor for the In Defense of Marxism Theoretical Journal, issue 41 of which is now available to buy. Josh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, I think I'll begin by asking you to expand a little bit. On the world that Marx and Engels grew up in, because I've already alluded in in our introduction, and we discussed this a little before you came on, Mm. about the fact that this was a period of profound and dramatic change, and it's in the cauldron of that change that Marxism is forged in Marx's mind. So, what kind of world was this?
1: Yeah, so the time when Marx and Engels were born, in 1818 and 1820 respectively, was really a period of transition for Europe in particular. Um, politically, they were born only a few years after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon is defeated in Waterloo in 1815. Uh, and that draws this, this incredibly stormy period of history that begins with the French Revolution to a close. So in spite of the fact that you'd had this huge revolution that ended up sweeping the whole of Europe, toppling ages-old monarchies like the Holy Roman Empire ceased to exist during this period, In spite of all this, in France, you actually have the restored monarchy. So the the same old Bourbons that had been overthrown by the revolution were back in power, Louis XVIII. Um, Of course, they weren't able to transform the conditions of French society back to the old feudal regime, but politically, they were trying the damnedest. uh, You had the Austrian Empire. Europe itself was, politically speaking, pretty unrecognizable by the standards of today. Countries like Germany, Italy, very important countries Mm. on the European continent, were actually parceled out into many you know, in Germany, I think it was something like 38 different kingdoms or states under the domination of, of, of several uh, larger powers like Prussia, Austria. Um, and a, a, a kind of a suffocating veil of reaction had descended across the continent um, after the Napoleonic Wars. One individual who's actually mentioned the Communist Manifesto, Metternich, was the, the prime minister of, of Austria, the Austrian Empire at this time. Um, he, he presided over, played a very influential role in this congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon, which was designed to put the the, the genie of revolution back in the lamp, uh, yeah, the lamp, and keep things as they had been and as stable as possible. So it's a period of political re- reaction across the board, the period in which they're born. But at the same time, ironically, we also start to see the economic transformation, the very beginnings of the economic transformation that you were talking about. England, Britain, had already begun to industrialise. And in 1819, you have the quite forcible entry of the working class onto the political scene with Peterloo Mm -hmm. and the Peterloo massacre. Um, In France, industrialization, the first railways tentatively start, even under the restored monarchy. So it's interesting that on the one hand, you've got a reactionary regime that wants to restore conditions of the past to an extent. But under foreign competition and pressure, they're having to introduce the very thing that Marx would later identify actually undermines their regime.
0: It's also very interesting to me that Marx was writing at a time when capitalism was by no means the predominant world system, where the working class were in a vast minority, in certainly in a global sense. And... It showed the quality of his foresight and the power of his ideas that he was able to predict so many things about the development of capitalism, the way that it would whittle down all the classes to just the two, the wage um, laborers and and the capitalist class, the bourgeoisie, um, about the way that that, that the relentless pursuit of markets would result in the expansion of capitalism all across Mm -hmm. the world. Uh, You read the Communist Manifesto today and... It's such a profoundly modern text. It has so much to say about the world we live in. And I I think that what I really want to get out of this discussion, because I think we're going to take this pretty much up until the point that Mm. Marx and Engels put pen to paper on the manifesto, is how we get there. It's how do we get to the
1: point where Marx is calling for workers of the world to unite. Yeah, well, I mean, linked to what you were just saying. With the beginnings of, you mentioned how modern the communist manifesto is, which I totally agree with. And it, it, it probably resembles more the world today than it did the world in which Marx was writing in the mm. sense that Germany, for example, where Marx grew up, um, was barely industrialized at all, lagging far behind other countries. The working class were large still organized in guilds, basically. Um, France was only just beginning to try and catch up with the likes of England and Belgium. And so what Marx was spelling out was more a picture of capitalism future than exactly... It's present and with this with this industrialization comes the creation of a working class in all these countries mm. it's also worth mentioning that yes you have the you know the economic birth if that's the right way of putting it of a working class of the proletariat by which I mean workers who own nothing but their ability to work who are working on the railway r- railways for example they're working in uh, the iron industry the steel industry mining um, these industries are starting to develop but you also have a political element in this. In, the, in 1830, you have the revolution that overthrows the restored monarchy and replaces it with a new, what Marx described as a bourgeois monarchy, where it was the workers of Paris who had fought and died of the barricades, but they got pretty much nothing out of it. Mm. 1832, you have the famous Reform Act in Britain, where workers have been hoping that they would also win the vote, and they're completely cut out. The right. middle class and the bourgeoisie acquire. Uh, almost pretty much full political power at this point, the workers are left out in the cold in spite of the fact that they had actually been the, a big part of that fight. Um, and so you start to see, which you hadn't seen before, a, a politically independent working class movement. Prior to that, the working class movement had been joined with with liberalism and other democratic movements. And that's, it, it's not a completely clean break, but this is when it's in the 1830s that socialist ideas and communist ideas really start to take off. Mm. because of the links with the growing working class movement.
0: And let's talk about some of those ideas because Marx and Engels were by no means the first to describe themselves as socialists. And in the Communist Manifesto, particularly Chapter 3, Marx makes telegraphic reference to a number of different trends um, in in socialist thought. You know, the the true socialists, Mm. the... Um, bourgeois socialists, the the Christian socialists, and, and so on. He drops a lot of names. Who were the leading lights of the socialist movement in Marx's time? What did that movement even look like? Because I'm sure it's very different to how we conceive of the radical labour movement today. Um, who were the main figures who influenced Marx's ideas, either through agreement or through opposition?
1: Um, well, I'd, I'd separate them. For the sake of simplicity, I'd put them in two broad categories, basically. Those two categories I'd describe as the utopians and the republican communists that potentially you could also describe as babouvists, mm-hmm. And I'll explain what that means in a second. I'll first talk about the utopians. In terms of people that were around when Marx was getting politically active, probably the most famous utopian at that time was somebody called Etienne Cabe. Um, now, Cabet had been influenced by earlier writers, in particular, Robert Owen is, a, is an example in um, England, but also um, Henri de Saint-Simon in France and Charles Fourier, also in France. And um, Marx himself encountered French socialism when he started writing for the Rheinische Zeitung. And so these two writers also had a direct influence on, on Marx. And, and so- that was the newspaper, the Rheinland Times, <laughs> that for which Marx was a correspondent? That's right, an editor as well. Right. Uh, I think he published his PhD thesis in that. So it's quite an early stage in his Mm. political career, if that's the right way of putting it. It's also Engels started writing articles from Manchester about the condition of the working class at this time, as early as now. Right, because Engels' father was a factory owner. That's right, yeah, he was a, a, a capitalist, an industrial capitalist, and he sent Engels over to Manchester to uh, to set him straight, effectively, to get this young man to start to toe the line and uh, and get to know the family business.
0: We'll deal with uh, naughty old Fred and Charles <laughs> in a minute, but um, you were talking about the socialist thinkers and activists and revolutionaries of Marx's day and, and prior.
1: Yeah, so going back to the, the start, for want of a better word, with Saint-Simon, what's what's interesting about Saint-Simon is he never used the term socialism and he, what he envisaged was, the expression he used was, in, an industrial society. So he's writing from France uh, at the very turn of the 19th century. He was thoroughly inspired by events like the American Revolution, the French Revolution. He actually came from an aristocratic background, he was a count. Um, but he abandoned all that because he was inspired by these ideals. He. Um, loved Adam Smith, he called him the immortal Adam Smith. In other words, he was so inspired by the enlightenment and the development of bourgeois science that he believed that on that basis, you would be able to construct a harmoniously and rationally planned economy Mm. without poverty, without oppression, without even a state. Um, And so you can see that there's a contradictory aspect that on one hand, some of what I've just said sounds very socialist and even Marxist. Mm. the idea of a plan, that the development of technology and industry and science can lead to a harmoniously rationally planned economy it's very socialist but he believed it was it would be achieved through the development of capitalism basically Mm. he he coined the term working class he's the first something that i'm aware of to ever use that term um and but for him the working class was not as we would describe it the working class included capitalists bankers because they weren't aristocrats because they because they worked exactly so the working class were people who produce in his eyes so the capitalist workers and peasantry the idlers with the uh, what he called yes. the idle classes, so that's the aristocrats yeah. and the church, the nobility and the religious um, elite. Exactly, those who, in his eyes, only consumed. Mm. And so, in reality, what he was doing was rationalizing to an extent, mystifying as well. This idea of capitalist progress, um, uh, to putting forward this idea that on the basis of of industry, you could that humanity could liberate itself. And so, there is there is a socialist kernel in that. During his lifetime, he gained no support whatsoever. In fact, he he despaired that nobody read his work and he died in in complete obscurity. But a very tiny group of, of disciples had encountered his work and started to promote his ideas. And it was actually one of his followers, a guy by the name of Leroux who uh, took over a paper called uh, the globe who he is thought to have been the first to coin the term socialism Mm -hmm. so it's an interesting dynamic where where someone who didn't even consider himself a, a socialist had actually a huge amount of influence on french socialism in particular um and and some of his ideas many of his ideas were taken up by late later socialists communists people like proudhon for example took a lot from um saint simon and Marx himself, I would say. Um, the other most famous utopian is a guy called uh, Charles Fourier, as I uh, mentioned earlier. He's also French. And he he puts forward the idea that civilization... He called it civilization. What he meant by civilization was bourgeois civilization, was capitalism. He actually was the son of a businessman, and he traveled around and, and been a, a traveling businessman his life. And he, so he'd, he'd kind of seen the best and the worst that capitalism had to offer. And he came to the conclusion that actually... Uh, under this so-called civilization, you have bar- uh, you know, barbarity, oppression, poverty, and Um And he, he ruthlessly criticized this and exposed the hypocrisy of this order. But he also put forward an alternative. He said that just as capitalism had inevitably arisen as a stage in human history, and again, this is starting to sound quite familiar from a Marxist standpoint, it would also inevitably be surpassed by a new stage in human history uh, that would be based not on competition and capitalism and private property, but on cooperation.
0: But did did he see a revolutionary route to achieving that?
1: No. This is why he ends up in the utopian camp. What kind of what makes what a common feature for all utopians is that they don't see any need for a political or revolutionary struggle in the main. So for so for, for Saint Simon, it was a case of just let let the bankers and capitalists get on with it and and develop industry. Uh, for Fourier, it was. He and his supporters would... He, he basically designed uh, a place called... He called it a phalanster, where these phalanxes, as he called them, or effectively communes, would live. And it's a force even designed how the building would li- live. Mm. So everyone was to live in a specially designed building, of course, lots of them, where thousands of people would also to live together in, in like an apartment block, which also had workshops and farms. And everybody's jobs would be rotated effectively, so they right. have a variety of tasks. And you would get paid based on how... Um, how uh, hard or unpopular the work is. So it was based on equality, but it was it, it was it was setting up utopian communes. I mean some of his followers actually set up a place that they called utopia in yes. Ohio. So this is explicitly utopian.
0: And you can see how Marx and Engels distinguished themselves from this approach because they were very cagey about painting detailed pictures about what a future socialist Mm. society would look like. And I expect for precisely this reason to distinguish themselves. In fact, there are many times when Marx and Engels will say, we don't know exactly what the state will look like. We don't know exactly what human relations or the family or sexual relations might look like in a future society. That's an affair for generations to come. Um, Our
1: task is to fight for the transformation
0: of society as it is. Yeah, and I suppose crucially
1: to base themselves on the real movement of the working class. Mm-hmm. And Saint-Simon and Fourier didn't do that because to be fair to them, they couldn't do that. At the time that Saint-Simon was writing, there wasn't really a working class at all in France. Certainly not, you know, a modern proletariat. Um, and so what what binds all these utopians together is their 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 path towards socialism or communism, depending on what they call it has not really anything to do with the working class struggle. I mentioned Cabe earlier. I won't go into too much detail with him, but Cabe wrote a novel, basically. I don't know if you've ever read Moore's Utopia. I have, yes. But he, he read it when he was in England, and he was inspired by it. And so he wrote his own version, in French, of course, about a traveler who encounters this island in which you find a perfect society mm. called Ikaria. So he developed an idea called Ikarian communism. And actually, he coined the famous phrase from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Mm. Uh, which Marx famously uses in in the critique of the Gotha program, and um, he he was probably the most popular socialist in all of France in the eighteen forties. He, he had more followers than anybody else. Um, but again, he would um, call on people to go and found com- uh, communes in America. That doesn't require the workers to do anything. It's a matter of indifference whether workers or capitalists or anybody goes and founds these colonies. And eventually, just leading by example, the rest of society is supposed to follow all in their train. Mm-hmm. And that's in marked contrast, not just to what Marx and Engels eventually put forward, but to the other strand of socialist thought that existed even prior to Marx and Engels' days, which um, you could call Republican Communism. And this was an offshoot of Jacobinism, uh, the most radical wing, of course, of Jacobinism in the Great French Revolution. And in particular, not really a product of the high point of the revolution, but rather its defeat. Right. So I mentioned, I used this word babouvism earlier, and this comes from uh, a person c- who called himself Gracchus Babouf, naming himself after a Roman, an ancient Roman revolutionary. Yes. Uh, but that's maybe going a bit too far back for the subject of this podcast. I'm sure he, we'll, we'll um, deal
0: with, with, with the, Gra- the Gracchi brothers, perhaps, in, the, in a future episode. Yeah, one
1: day. But either way, in, in, in 1796, he and his supporters, who call themselves the Conspiracy of the Equals, uh, were arrested. Uh, what they planned to do was overthrow the, it was called the Directory, which was this kind of uh, regime that was starting to pull back some of the gains of the high point of the, the French Revolution, um, and institute communism. Now, even at its high point, the Jacobins were not communists. They did not uh, hold, uh, they, they were not in favor of the abolition of private property. But babuff and his followers actually put that forward as a goal. So unlike the Utopians, it was... A revolutionary insurrectionary struggle on the model of the Jacobins, the goal of which is the abolition of private property, mm-hmm. and this is a direct influence on a famous revolutionary of the time, August Blanqui, yes, um, who was a, a contemporary of people like Marx and Proudhon, and he was ca- he was influenced by the ideas of Saint Simon, but he was also influenced by the ideas of Gracchus Babeuf, um, and he kind of brought these together in an insurrectionary communism. So it's interesting that this in, in this period of the thirties and forties. You have these two poles, if you like. There's the utopian uh, brand that um, has a lot more to say about the development of society in general and the society of the future, but kind of scorns any kind of political action. I think they probably they felt they had their fingers burnt from the experience of the French Revolution. I think that played a role in this. And then on the other hand, you've got the people who take direct influence from the the traditions of Jacobinism, but don't have such a worked out theoretical view about, how and why this fits in with the development of society and I, I don't think it would be fair to say marx simply rejected the utopian and put forward not that you've said this but that he simply rejected utopianism and put forward the insurrectionary route or, or said oh we'll, we'll develop we'll work out where we're going after the revolution and that's one thing that blanqui said he actually I, I would say he successfully brought those things together that he took so the scientific foundation the rational foundation uh, or the rational kernel in the ideas of people like Saint-Simon, and combined it with the insurrectory movement that was was really developing in society. So,
0: this isn't the main objective of this episode, to give an early biography of Marx, but I think that it's at the point where he becomes acquainted with Engels that you really start to see his ideas and political activity take shape and reach a new level. Um, but how do we get to this point? So they end up meeting They meet in Cologne, but they end up... Working Very together. briefly, by the way. Very theory. briefly, but they end up working together. So in
1: 1842, they, they bump into each other effectively while Engels is on his way to England. And so right, when I he's see. in England, that's when he writes what eventually becomes the conditions um, of the working class in England, where independently of Marx, he comes to the conclusion that it is the working class and the working class movement that is the vehicle for the realization of communism, which was not a common idea in Germany at the time. Mm-hmm. It's worth remembering that the working class of Germany and England were very, very different at this time. In England, you've got the cotton mills of Lancashire. In Germany, this is only really beginning to take place. And so Engels had the insight yeah. to see what was going on, ironically, in his dad's own factory yeah. and say, this is a picture of Germany's future. The, the German working class movement is moving in this direction. And that is a good thing. That, that is actually how... Socialism is going to be built. Marx was um, eventually kicked out. Well, the Ranish uh, Zeitung was um, was shut down by the the Prussian authorities, and um, so Marx ends up in Paris. and It's in eighteen forty eight, no, eighteen forty four. Sorry, in Paris, where Marx and Engels properly meet and become the famous duo that mm-hmm. we know them as. They they realize that they agree on basically everything, and they uh, they begin to work very closely together. So that's from forty four. Right. Okay, and. They become
0: acquainted at a point when their ideas are very clearly intersecting, and do they jump immediately into collaborative political activity? What what at this early stage are they writing, and what kind of political work are they doing?
1: Um, yes, they they start collaborating closely, theoretically, and and practically. Um, so theoretically, they they write the German ideology together. Obviously, they don't publish it; um, it's a, it remains an unfinished work but they start clarifying their ideas in opposition to the other socialist and you know political and philosophical ideas, particularly in the German movement at the time. Um, it's uh, another important thing to remember is that the context in which they were doing political activity was one in which you had small colonies, for want of a better word, of German craftsmen who was part of their kind of guild training. They had to go and travel elsewhere in Europe. So every major European city had German workers, They might be joiners, tailors, cabinet makers, that kind of thing. Um, And so at this time, so we're now talking about the 1840s, these workers, and it wasn't just in the 40s, in the 30s as well, English, French, German workers were beginning to set up educational societies and actually debate and discuss economics, politics, philosophy. Marx and Engels were in that environment and they were encountering various ideas. They were beginning to encounter uh, the ideas of the French socialists, obviously in Paris, but also. Uh, various German socialists like um, Wilhelm Weitling, and they were trying to clarify their own ideas and distinguish themselves from other tendencies. Um, and it's at this time that uh, Marx publishes, well, writes his uh, theses on Feuerbach. That's in 1845, mm-hmm. same time as the roughly the same time as the German ideology. To kind of, if you like, settle accounts with the the German and Hegelian philosophy that he had grown up with and been heavily influenced by.
0: Yeah, because he was a young Hegelian, of course, which was, for want of a better word, the the radical wing of the Hegelians, as opposed to the wing that tailgated Hegel's own conservatism.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Hegelianism had effectively become the state ideology by that time. All of the universities were, ta- were teaching his ideas. It makes so sense that- when you
0: think that Hegel thought that the uh, Prussian state of Wilhelm of his day was the ideal society.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Engels himself also was a was a younger Hegelian at some point. And Marx followed Feuerbach into materialism, into dialectical materialism actually, you know. He retained the dialectic of Hegel. And
0: Feuerbach's a really interesting figure because from what I remember of Engels um, and end of classic German philosophy, he was a, a prodigious thinker who made many important contributions, but he was born at the wrong time in the wrong place. He lived in a backwater in a relatively underdeveloped country before the scientific discoveries like the conservation of energy the discovery of the cell and darwin's theory of evolution that would have given some actual concrete basis for the development of his ideas and in the end he descended into a strange kind of human humanist um and <laughs> died in relative obscurity and engels calls that a real tragedy um but feuerbach's materialism is an important component of the dialectical materialism that marx and engels eventually develop
1: right yeah, and it's in, the, the way you put it, it's in, you can really see a process of evolution. Like what what I was saying about Saint-Simon, he, he died in obscurity, but ended up having a huge influence because of developments that he, he did not experience and could not have uh, necessarily predicted exactly. Similar to Feuerbach, he, his, it, he reaches a limit, where he he has established materialism for the natural world and the development of the natural world, but he rejects it for the development of society. He basically says, once you have consciousness, society is determined by consciousness and ideas. So he he reverts back to idealism. And so Marx follows him up to that point and then effectively takes a leap. He he clarifies his own um, revolutionary materialism, if you like, and it's probably beyond the, the bounds of this podcast to go into that. But I think one thing that definitely is relevant to this episode is... His development of historical materialism—that hmm. he starts investigating um, jurisprudence while he's at universities, and he, st- he starts studying um, philosophy, also historians of the French Revolution—and he, these historians that he's reading, by the way, they're not just pure idealists. They they do say that the different political tendencies in the French Revolution were based on class interests. Hmm. He didn't come up with that idea. It was French in, uh, uh, historians of the the Restoration period who started putting forward that idea, but for them. Um, they themselves reached a limit because it's all well and good to say politics is based on class interest. I agree with that. But well, what, where does class interest come from? Where do the different classes come from? And Marx came to the conclusion that the development of different classes and their weights in society and what determines, in other words, what determines their composition and their interest is the economic development of society. And it's actually that conclusion, so that philosophical conclusion that drives him to start studying English political economy like Adam Smith and David Ricardo and so he launches into that in the early 40s um, and um, Engels also he, he, he begins his own independent investigations into these it's quite interesting they, they're going on a very similar parallel journey until they eventually meet and start combining forces
0: yeah what kind of political activity were Marx and Engels up to in the early years of their relationship
1: it was it was almost exclusively propaganda work. I mean, first of all, they're they're, they're clarifying, they're establishing their own ideas and what distinguishes them from anyone else. Mm. Um, Which
0: we say to this day is the first duty of any of any Marxist really is to raise your political understanding, is to do the reading and to clarify your own thoughts and to you know um, embed yourself in the ideas.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's important to identify, not arbitrarily, just to come up with differences in order to be a different tendency, but to identify what it is that differentiates you from other tendencies. Because if there isn't a difference, then surely you should just participate fully and, and loyalty, loyally in whatever exists. Marx and Engels didn't take a sectarian approach, but what they did, I mentioned these these kind of colonies of German workmen and these educational societies. Obviously, these, Marx and Engels are Germans, they're German speakers. And so they... They uh, participate in these discussions and debate other thinkers, people like Karl Grun, another German, and also the ideas of, of um, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, who, of course, is a, a very famous figure even today. Um, and what they're what they're trying to do basically is once they've clarified what they think about things and how how the socialist movement, you know, the, the best perspective for the socialist movement, they start setting out to convince others. Um, but they don't just do it in Germany amongst Germans, one one important step in their political activity is to set up something called the Communist Correspondence Committee. Mm. Um, the purpose of which, which was basically just, well, I mean, it does what it says on the tin. They were, they were writing letters and corresponding with other socialists. It wasn't this grand organization. It was set up in Brussels because once again, Marx has been hounded out of the place he was in. So having been kicked out by the Prussian state, he's kicked out of Paris by Guizot, who again gets an honorable mention in the Communist Manifesto. It's interesting, that, that first, basically that first paragraph of the Communist Manifesto, he talks about Pope and Tsar, yeah. Gizo Metternich, and Gizo. He's almost describing in part his own life story. Where yeah, it's everyone who's kicked
0: him out of anywhere he's ever lived.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, one reason why he was kicked out of um, Cologne in the first place was because um, he criticized the Tsar. And at that point, Prussia was um, kind of under Tsarist influence. But anyway, that's another story. So th- they set up this correspondence committee. And Marx, he writes to Pierre Proudhon directly. And in this letter to Proudhon, he explains what the purpose of this body is. And he says, basically, it's, he thinks it's important to try and overcome national barriers by um, socialists of these different countries, particularly Germany, France, and England. He doesn't limit that only, but that's that's the main... Of course, he's based in Brussels, so we'd include Brussels in uh, Belgium in this. Um, that they should be writing to share ideas and to cl- clarify their ideas. But he also mentions something I think quite important. He says, at the point of action by which clearly he means, in the event of a revolutionary outbreak, he says it would it would really pay for us to be in close contact. Of course. So what he's putting forward is, yes, theoretical discussion and clarification, but also a certain degree of unity and internationalism in action. He's, he's predicting that eventually there is going to be a, a revolutionary movement emerging in one of these European countries in which he's expecting the question of socialism may well be Po- at least posed, whether it can be answered or not, I guess is another question. Mm. And so he's reaching out because it's also worth pointing out that at this time, the socialist movement, it was quite national. And it wasn't explicitly nationalist necessarily, but English socialists weren't necessarily paying much attention or <laughs> any attention really to what was going on in Germany. Mm. French socialists, of course, had their own, in their eyes, very proud tradition of insurrection and so on. Uh, there was a certain amount of national chauvinism going on in, in the movement. In fact, I think probably the fact that Marx and Engels were Germans probably contributed to their internationalist outlook. Yes. Because the German working class, first of all, was having to, not that they were working class, but the German workers were having to imbibe ideas from outside through their travels, but also the fact that Germany was so far behind the rest, they were receiving ideas all, all um, you know, from outside, already developed, that's what I'm trying to say, mm. from outside. It's a bit similar to what um, I think Trotsky says about the Russian proletariat, that they, they entered the international movement at a time when Marxism was already developed and, and dominant. There's... We're going even further back, but there's a, there's a parallel there with what was going on with um, with the Germans and, and uh, the German workers and, and Marx and Engels as well. Um, and yeah, so a big part of their activity is really propaganda, trying to convince um, these workers' discussion societies, but also other thinkers of the correctness of their ideas.
0: It's always encouraging when we study our own history and we remember that Marx and Engels, also Lenin and the Bolsheviks, if you think about the early years of the Russian... Social Democratic Labour Party, the reading circles with Plekhanov and so on, they all started in a position of being in an extreme minority, Mm. just trying to find the ones and twos, trying to find the early cadres where you can build a revolutionary nucleus, you know, first in your own country. But what I think is really interesting is, as you say, the way that internationalism was almost... A necessary part of the DNA of Marxism, because all the ideas that informed it were imported necessarily. It sounds like with this um, Communist Correspondence Committee, you almost have the germ of what would eventually become the International Workingmen's Association or the
1: First International. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And you can, yeah, you can see their thinking in the fact that they reached out to Chartists in Britain, with whom they had some of the Chartist leaders. they have very close relations with mm. Julian Harney, for example. Um, it was in his his publication The Red Republican that the first English edition of the Communist Party was published um, in France they were discussing with Proudhon also with somebody called Louis Blanc yes. who was part of the social democratic movement that that term and that idea did exist even then mm-hmm. um, in in Germany they were of course talki- talking to these working men's discussion societies but in particular they were establishing quite a powerful influence over an organisation called the League of the Just yes which they'd encountered um, back in the early days. Um, they never actually joined it because at that time, the League of the Just um, was quite utopian in its, uh, in its approach. Yeah, its slogan was all men are brothers, right? Yes. and Which, it, of course,
0: does away with class distinction, the fact that the bourgeois and the proletariat are not, in fact, brothers. They're
1: enemies. Well, exactly. So it, it, took, it, it had quite a, should we say, sort of a, a moral approach mm. to the question. Many of its leading figures were explicitly Christian, Mm-hmm. I think it wouldn't be fair it wouldn't be unfair to say, certainly in its earlier period, it was this secret Christian communist organization of German artisans. Very interesting development. And actually it was it was very closely aligned with the organization of August Blanqui mm. in the eighteen thirties. So Blanqui had set up a secret society called the Society of the Seasons, um, where all members were anonymous. They took the name Monday to Saturday. That was your name in the in the, the party branch, effectively and um, each branch was run by somebody called a Sunday. Actually, Price. GK Chesterton wrote a novel called The Man Who Was Thursday, based, based entirely on that. Not entirely on, on that. Um, and they launched a failed insurrection against the July monarchy. This is in France. Mm-hmm. About 500 armed men took the Hotel de Ville in Paris, and I think they'd hoped that the Parisian masses seeing an insurrection taking place would just spontaneously join and that would be the revolution. Yeah, so Blanqui's organization launches a failed insurrection which lands him in jail. The League of the Just was um, a partner in that. They participated in that. Mm -hmm. And many of them therefore had to flee to London after the failure of this. And now London had lots of political exiles, people from Poland, Hungary, and a lot of these people, their only common language was German. Right. And so, again, there was an element of internationalism of necessity uh, in this network of political exiles. And the experience of that insurrection, the failure of that insurrection, and the, um, the methods of, of conspiracy um, caused at least a section of the leadership of the League of the Just to reevaluate their strategy. And they started taking a bit more of an interest in propaganda work as we might call it. And so they played a big role in setting up or running these workers' discussion societies in London and other places. And so Marx and Engels, they encouraged that development. They welcomed it. One of the reasons they didn't join is because they were put off by these, but as well as the utopian ideas, the conspiratorial methods. They, Marx and Engels started participating. There's a brilliant letter from Engels, who'd basically been sent to Paris to try and win over uh, one of these sections of German workers in the Faubourg-Saint-Antoine, which is quite a famous area of radical history in Paris. And he gives quite a detailed report, similar to, to be honest, similar to how you and I might report back from a, from a meeting that we've attended trying to you know discuss our ideas, um, where he talks about how he was debating against advocates of uh, Karl Grum, who was a German socialist, uh, advocating very similar ideas to that of um, Proudhon, actually. Mm. And he, so he gives an account of all the debates that, um, that they had. And he sets out uh, the, the kind of scientific communist as they were calling it alternative and uh, proudly reports that he won the day he said if only we could organize openly we'd won, win hundreds of these chaps I think is the word he uses um, and so they're, they're, they're carrying on uh, propaganda work and trying to win over use the expression ones and twos they're, they're basically trying to find class conscious workers and socialist intellectuals who are already moving in their direction who they, can, uh, who they can win over in order to form an organization with and the fruits of that pay off when um one of the leaders or i think a section of the leadership of the league of the just actually approached marx and engels and say we want you to attend our congress in london Mm. uh, of the summer of in the summer of 1847 in order to discuss your ideas and um i mean the way engels put it inviting them effectively to take it over because they'd already a section had already been convinced by what they were saying in their letters in their articles and so that was the product of of uh, a couple of years of propaganda work yeah. uh, which also has an element of a united front maybe it's a bit grand to call it a united front when we're talking about a couple of individuals but they didn't th- they were prepared to work and discuss with anyone at this time mm-hmm. similar to how the first international the the basis of that was are you in favor of a classless society let's talk yes um, and that that paid off in the case of the league of the just they also entered up into in fact in the Communist, uh, manifesto, they explicitly say how they're, prepa- they're prepared to work with social democrats in France, but retain the right to criticize them. Uh, um, specifically, the manifesto mentions their illusions handed down from the French Revolution. Mm. And that I think that that, that method, and I, we're talking very broad terms, but that strategy, if you like, or that way of doing things, I think has, has persisted in the Marxist movement of apply the united front, but retain your political independence it's and also demonstrate the theoretical superiority of, of your ideas.
0: It's interesting because there's still disgruntled historians to this day who will call Marx and
1: Engels' activity in the League of the Just a coup. They were invited to attend a a congress where you had delegates from the various different um, sections. They didn't call them branches. Mm. Um, And there was a debate. In fact, they had two congresses over the course of that year, one of which lasted 10 days where they were debating the ideas. and, And a majority of the delegates backed Marx and Engels' viewpoint and um, changed the name to the Communist League on the basis of that, changed the structures of the organization, had a, an elected central committee. Yep. They abandoned a lot of the conspiratorial aspects of it. Mm-hmm. The organization still had to be largely underground. It still had to be illegal. Uh, it could be relatively open in London, but not not elsewhere. But um, it started implementing... I mean, what I would... As a Marxist today, I would look at what Marx and Engels were trying to do in the Communist International, in the Communist League sorry, and I'd call it them applying democratic centralism. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in the the kind of organizational forms of the communist League they were then um, it, it was decided that they would have a uh, they would circulate kind of uh, a discussion document about the principles and aims of the communist League um, and then meet up in a second Congress in November of eighteen forty seven to decide and draw up a manifesto. The manifesto, of course was the communist manifesto. But it's at this time that they have a 10-day debate, basically, about the aims of the organization. Questions that we wrangle with, you know, we encounter, and, and honest questions, good questions, I'd say, is can communism be achieved immediately or does it require a transitional period? Can it be achieved by political revolution? Can it be, must everything be nationalized all at once or would you have small experiments? You know, these kind of, yes, yes, now some of these questions, you can't give like a blueprint. In fact, all of these questions, you can't give a predestined blueprint answer, but... It's also a question of method and the way you're approaching it. And, mm. and, and Marx, in particular, put forward what we now know as, as Marxism at this uh, this uh, Congress and was, um, what's the word, commissioned to write the Communist Manifesto that he did over the winter of 1847 and 1848.
0: And we'll come back to that, but just quickly, can we talk about Marx's relationship with Proudhon? Because if you read their correspondences, you read what Marx wrote about Proudhon, to Proudhon in response to Proudhon's ideas, they come across as sort of best of enemies, really. I mean, there's that there's that famous um, quote where um, Marx says that Proudhon is called a good um, German philosopher in France and a good French economist in Germany, and being an economist and a German, Marx is able to disabuse the reader that he's either. Um and Proudhon shared the criticism that the... Well, I say the criticism. He shared the position of the utopian socialists that he was opposed to the need for violent revolution as he saw it. And yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, Engels says in the letter to Pavel Anenkov that he's opposed... He's the enemy of all political tendencies. Mm. And of course, it's the division between the anarchists and, and, the, and the Marxists, the communists, and... Um, that splits the first international that's sort of regarded as the first great suture between the, um, the, the revolutionary labor movements, the, the socialist movements. Um, it's a defining division. And mm. you could see how, even though Proudhon had an influence on Marx and Marx expresses a certain amount of aberration for, for Proudhon, especially earlier in his career, he sort of sharpens his teeth against Proudhon. I mean, obviously um mm. the, um poverty of philosophy, his response to Proudhon's philosophy of poverty is uh in many ways a scathing repudiation of many of Proudhon's limitations. But it's also a really instructive text if you read it because you get a sense of how Marx developed his ideas in opposition to what eventually became recognized as anarchism.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting the way you put it, because you can actually you can sense when you read poverty of philosophy how much Marx is is using Proudhon as a as a whetstone, if that's the right word, to sharpen mm. his, his knives. So you can see that he himself, Proudhon and Marx at a similar time have been reading the same stuff mm. and coming to different conclusions. And they met similar to how Marx and Engels met in 1844 and had long discussions and decided they were on the same page and they were going to work together. Marx and Proudhon met in 1844 and had long discussions, Marx says they had discussions all night in which I infected him very much to his detriment with dialectics. (laughs) So they were discussing discussing political economy, philosophy, having some kind of, you know, uh, clearly Marx had some kind of influence on on Proudhon. Up until that point, he was very influenced by Kant and uh, this idea of antinomies, that everything contains an irreconcilable contradiction. And so a lot of his work was based on that philosophical approach. Encountering the Hegelian dialectic from Marx, he was fascinated by this. In fact, he, um, Proudhon himself, in his memoirs, said dialectics intoxicated me. Mm. Um, I don't think his my personally. I don't think his understanding of dialectics was the same as Marx. I don't think it was necessarily correct. His approach was that you find a balance. So he said that private property is inevitable. You know this famous this famous quote of his: "Property is theft." Yes, that is from an earlier work um, in his. Uh, philosophy of poverty, the full name of which is the system of contradiction, mm. philosophy of poverty, he puts forward the idea, poverty, property is theft, property is freedom. Yes. So he takes up this idea that everything is a contradiction, everything has an opposite side, but those two sides are effectively permanent and inevitable, and so the task of society is to find an adequate balance. Uh, Proudhon says that, I don't, I'm not sure if he calls it socialism, but he basically says the task of society and to reform society, you have to take the techniques of bookkeeping and apply that he says this, you, you apply the bookkeeper's skill to society. In other words, you find a credit somewhere and it's offset by a debit and you basically have to make sure they balance. In you know, the, to me, reading this, this comes across as I, I would describe it as reformism, really. And what Marx criticizes bitterly is that at all points, this and, and Proudhon is the person to have coined the term anarchism, he is the first anarchist in that sense, in that he's consciously putting this forward. But what Marx is criticizing, perhaps most bitterly and deeply, is this idea that at no point does Proudhon ever say that we should go beyond bourgeois relations. Yes. For Proudhon, the road to socialism—I'm not sure he called it socialism, so apologies—but you know, the road to his um, mutualism, is the term that he did use, was that workers co- combine in cooperatives, they use their savings to combine in cooperatives, and outcompete the capitalists by sen- selling the products at cost. His, his, his economic theory led him to the conclusion that if everyone just sold at cost, um, which he considers to be value, which is not the same thing, but if, if everybody just sold their products at cost, there'd be no poverty and no inequality mm-hmm. um, because everybody would make just enough to survive. In other words, it's 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 not the working class seizing control of the economy and planning it, which is, of course, the, the Marxist standpoint. Um, and to an extent, also, Blanqui put forward similar ideas. Um, in actual fact, it's the working class out competing the bourgeoisie at their own, beating them at their own game. And Proudhon said, "Look, a revolution by force." He described as a, a contradiction. He basically said that you can't have a successful social revolution by political revolution. The social revolution is this economic revolution, which he described as placing society under the laws of contracts. He said that explicitly. In other words, if if you have fair dealing, if, you know, my interpretation at least is if he's saying that if the workers succeed in establishing a fair lot for themselves on the basis of producing commodities and selling them on the basis, uh, sorry, on the basis of the market, which Marx says is actually retaining bourgeois society. And actually, if, if that were allowed to take place, then some would outcompete others and you would probably have a restoration of capitalism anyway. He also put forward this idea of um, uh, exchanging products on the basis of the amount of labor time that went into them, which was quite a common idea in the English movement at this time. Uh, actually Owen had put forward this idea of labor bazaars where instead of charging a price in money, you would basically just try, uh, swap things based on how much time it took to produce.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an eight-hour table for two four-hour lamps.
1: I mean, uh, essentially, and, and Engels ridiculed this by saying it's been tried in England and it's already failed. I think Engels was quite harsh about what he saw as the parochialism and lack of originality that of, the, of the, the... He described it as a panacea, as in Proudhon was putting forward as the cure for all ills a policy that had already been tried and experimented in, in England and had been a complete failure, and um, as a result, Proudhon said, and it, it's quite interesting the way he puts it. He says, similar to Saint Simon, that if you have this economic revolution, and this revolution is a dr- gradual outcompeting of the capitalists, then the state itself withers away; it becomes unnecessary. He reckon to be fair to him, he recognised that the ba- that the state is grounded in economic exploitation and oppression and so on he did I, I think he did draw that out of the situation so he therefore said it almost it sounds quite materialist this well if you get rid of the economic exploitation there's no need for a state which again listeners who are familiar with state and revolution and the works of Marx and uh, of engels on the state um pr- that probably sounds a little bit familiar the important difference is what engels was saying is that the state only withers away when you transform when the working class transforms the economy on a socialist basis, which cannot be achieved when you have a capitalist class and a capitalist state with its army of, of, of well its army, but it's also its army of bureaucrac- uh, bureaucrats and so on, that is designed to maintain the present order. You yeah. can't gradually, peacefully, without the capitalist class knowing, outcompete them out of ex- you know compete them out of existence, and then the state peacefully withers away. You have to overthrow the bourgeois state. In order to actually set that process off,
0: yeah, and Lenin um, similarly takes the reformists to task in the Second International in state and revolution for much the same reason. Um, aside from the ideas that Marx and Engels were encountering, there were important political events and developments that I think it's fair to say informed their outlook. And of course, in England, where Marx and Engels um, spent this 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 portion of their lives. You've got um, the development of chartism, which nominally starts with the attempt to win the vote for for working men, but obviously goes well beyond that and uh, approaches a genuinely revolutionary movement, or becomes a revolutionary movement, ultimately defeated revolutionary movement. And it's a movement which which emerges um, out of ultimately democratic demands, but becomes... um, you know, firmly enmeshed with the independent demands of the working class. So how did their encounters with Chartism
1: affect Marx and Engels' outlook? I think it had a huge influence, on, particularly on Eng, uh, Engels, which, of course, therefore had a, a big influence on, on their work collectively. Engels witnessed parts of the Chartist movement and history of Chartism firsthand when he was up in Manchester, which at, at times was a, a real heartland, of chartism. He arrived in England in 1842, which is the same year as a general strike which took place in the main industrial areas of England and 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 also Scotland to an extent, which was known as the plug plot. It was called the plug plot because the workers would literally pull the plugs out of the giant boilers that they used at that time to run the mills to stop work. And this this was a general strike that reached revolutionary uh, I mean all all general strikes posed the question of power, but this was quite explicit in that the workers it was it was economic factors that pushed them into the strike movement. Engel suspected that the bosses actually deliberately turned them out in order to provoke them. But things rapidly got out of hand when the workers actually had mass assemblies and voted in these assemblies to adopt the charter, which was the list of democratic and by this time also social demands actually of the Chartist movement. They said that they would stay out until the charter was won. And the charter includes things like universal mail at this time, universal mail suffrage, annual parliaments, the payment of a a salary to parliamentarians to mps so it's not just wealthy people of independent means that can sit in parliament things that we would consider to be basic democratic reforms that at that time didn't exist but it acquired i mean it acquired a revolutionary um scale but also it actually moved in the direction of socialism the, the demands became increasingly class but precisely because it was a working class movement the purpose of these democratic rights were never just an end in themselves. It was to transform workers' conditions. Um, And so it it wouldn't be wrong to say that Chartism was the first revolutionary movement of the working class in history. So you can imagine what someone like uh, Engels encountering this movement is going to think. He, as I already mentioned earlier, he saw England as a picture of Germany's, well, the world's future. And he also saw the movement in England as... An indication of the world's future. I don't think either he or Marx thought, oh, it's just going to be identical. But you can see the influence of Chartism on Engels in particular when I mentioned earlier he 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 debated these different ideas in these workers' educational societies and clubs. In one debate, he's opposing this idea of um of cooperatives as being the answer to all ills with his vision of communism, and he puts it down, he he sketches out in three principles. The way he puts it is less developed than he puts it later on, you know, that we would say today. But he basically says that the purpose of our movement is that to uh, gain, that the interests of the proletariat win in opposition to the capitalists. That might sound a bit obvious. It might sound weird that he's saying that. The reason he, he insists on the in opposition, in other words, it's not just a brotherhood of man where we can have everyone, you know, all better off on the basis of cooperation is the working class has to beat its um, oppressor, basically. Mm. That um, this will ultimately be achieved by the abolition of private property. In other words, it's explicitly communist. Again, that's intended as a bit of a barb against Proudhon preserving private property, um, preserving the market, and yet trying to abolish poverty. And then the third one is this can only be achieved by a democratic revolution by force. And that, that combination of words I find particularly interesting. And I, I think that wh- what he's doing there is he's carrying over his experience of physical force chartism into communism, effectively.
0: And the physical force chartism being the radical wing of chartism as opposed to the reformist wing or the more reformist wing of chartism.
1: Yeah, you could put it like that. The, the opposition was between the moral force chartists who mm. said that you have to sway public opinion and then if you do that, then you'll get the reform you want. And the physical force who said, well, yes, if we can do that, brilliant. But if we can't, then we should be prepared to do things like a general strike, even insurrection. You know, use use violence and force and arm the workers in order to impose our program on the state, effectively. They didn't have the clearest idea of what they would do if they would win that. They weren't given the opportunity to put it into application. And they were the first ever to try and do it. And I, I genuinely believe that Engels encountered these ideas, saw this movement and thought, that's the starting point. Engels didn't think that was the end, even at the no. time when he talked about chartism. he said, this is only the starting point. Mm. That if the workers succeeded in winning universal suffrage by these means, it wouldn't just end there. He said it would end up with the, the liquidation of the House of Lords, the monarchy, because he understood the class character of it. And I believe that he was bringing together all these different elements that communism as the abolition of private property, which he did not take from Chartism, mm-hmm. um, that the the class struggle, the opposition between workers and capitalists away from this kind of German true socialism, this, this utopian all-men-a-brothers idea, but the, the idea that you would have a revolution carried out by the working class in order to put the working class in power. I believe that that's what he meant by a democratic revolution by force.
0: Mm. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion, Josh, and I'm sure we could go on for hours, but um, I'm going to start bringing things to an end. The first thing I'm going to ask is we talked a little bit about the way that marx and engels propagandized the way that they debated and clarified their ideas the way that they formed these correspondence committees as the germ of internationalism and and so on um but were there any other notable ways in which at this early stage they are putting their ideas into practice
1: i think the the main strand of their activity was in the form of, of propaganda work mm. and establishing connections with and, and eventually influencing um, other socialists but also workers who are turning towards socialism. Um, as a result they effectively acquired the leadership of the communist league which means that opens up new vistas of activity. Now we're straying into 1848 itself but they entered into 1848 with I guess you could call it a revolutionary organization that they then turned towards the revolutionary movement that they were everybody was thoroughly expecting by the beginning of 1848 and the end of 1847 so it's at this point that their propaganda activity starts to turn more into a should we say a direct intervention and an attempt to influence events themselves which they had not been doing previously
0: yes and this is the last thing i wanted to talk about the circumstances in which marx and engels write the communist manifesto because it was published actually just before the Revolutionary Wave of 1848 broke out, if yes. I'm not mistaken. And obviously it was written somewhat before. So it's in anticipation. Um, so what happens when the manifesto is, is is published? How is it received? And how does the Revolutionary Wave of 1848 affect its reception? How wide of an audience does it acquire in these
1: first few years? Um, well, first few years, as I guess is broad. In the first year, it's worth remembering that it's written in German. Obviously, mm-hmm. the English translation doesn't come out until 1850. Mm-hmm. So, the revolution has uh, the revolutionary wave has subsided and been defeated by that point. The French translation comes out shortly before the June insurrection of 1848, which was a full-scale workers' revolution, basically in Paris. Um, the amount, the extent to which that the publication of that pamphlet would have influenced the revolutionary workers. I, I can only explain it was very limited. Mm. Um, let's not forget that the major foothold that Marx and Engels had was amongst German-speaking workers. They did have some influence on le- leading layers of the Chartist movement. Unfortunately, their influence starts to rise as Chartism itself starts to wane mm. after 1848. Um, so the main point of application, if you like, that they have for their ideas is in the German movement. Mm. But... It, this is a, this, uh, the, just to sp- speak about the context a little bit because I, I think it, it, it's interesting that the the context in which the manifesto was written is you'd had in 1845 you'd had the potato um, blight mm-hmm. you then had grain failures across Europe so you have starvation and pr- grain prices doubling across the continent you then had an industrial crisis a, a, a crisis of overproduction a slump. Um, and a commercial and financial, in other words, basically every aspect of the economy was in crisis yeah. in 1847. Every horseman of the economic apocalypse was riding, if you like. Yes, yeah. And in addition to that, you have these regimes that have been stamped, basically just sat on Europe after the defeat of Napoleon, mm. trying to keep hold everything together when the economic base of society has already begun to change, has is entered into deep crisis. The bourgeoisie itself, in Britain, the bourgeoisie is in control politically and so feel reasonably confident about their ability to to manoeuvre. Also, England is economically stronger. But in France, places like France and Germany, even the kind of liberal industrial bourgeoisie, they are themselves excluded from political power. So they're they're threatened with bankruptcy. They're not happy. And so what happens is they start to enter into opposition to the pre-existing monarchy. They start agitating for even just a slight extension of the franchise. And we see, in other words, what I'm getting at is a split starts to emerge within the ruling class itself. And it's into that split that the masses start to burst. And this, this opening up of this split is something that becomes more and more apparent over the course of 1847. Marx and Engels are writing articles and, uh, and writing letters to each other, analyzing the situation, predicting pretty much exactly what, what was going to be coming. Um so you've got this kind of this tumult building up and this anticipation, and so you can imagine them preparing themselves in their perspectives and their ideas and trying to prepare the organization to launch itself into Germany in particular because we're talking about German workers here What happens and I think this is a lesson for us right now a big lesson for us right now is that the communist League launches itself into Germany, but this was an organization of at best uh, a few hundred of people mm-hmm. entering into a, a a country split into thirty eight separate states and it just dissolved. A new Rhineland Times that was founded in 1848 as a kind of organ of the the Communist League in Germany and in the German Revolution. It gained a certain following where it was based in Cologne, but it did not wield a kind of national influence over the uh, the German workers' movement. Many members of the Communist League just went off and did their own thing. They were out of commu- you know they didn't they weren't communicating by smartphones. Of course, they had very little communi- communication with each other and either became absorbed in the movement or ended up dropping out of politics after 1848 many of them traveled over to the United States mm. and actually ended up playing quite you know a, a noticeable role in the American Civil War which of course is far beyond the bounds of this episode but the point i'm making is that engels uses uh, an interest uh, a, 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 an expression that i i really like to to explain this that he said that the communist league proved to be too weak a lever in order to decisively intervene in the revolutionary events that emerged in germany at that time and so what was necessary was after that, after the, after the Communist League effectively dissolved in the heat of events, because it was too small, I don't think you can blame Marx and Engels or, 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 or the, um, the, the, the class fighters in the Communist League for that, it was necessary to build again, but build again, of course, on a more solid theoretical foundation, not only on the base of the ideas that we were talking about just now, but also on the basis of the experience of 1848, which we haven't been able to go into. And it's really the, that the, the clarification of uh, these ideas, and also the methods on how to build, which starts this this process that moves towards the the first international, and eventually also the second international as well. It re- 1848 really was a pivotal year in in Marx and Engels' lives and in the history of Marxism. I'd say,
0: and no doubt we'll have to do an episode devoted to the revolutionary wave of 1848 and its impact on on Marx and Engels, uh, and on the perspective for revolution in in, in Europe and um, how it affected the the course of history. Uh, And of course leads up to the Paris Commune The Mm. first attempt at the working class To uh, storm heaven As was famously put And uh, build a state in their image Um, Josh, this has been Really interesting, thank you so much for joining us
1: My pleasure, thank you
0: That was International Marxist Radio Thanks for joining us Tune in again Same time next week For more Marxist news, theory And analysis And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website marxist.com and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.